how's it going, everyone? You've reached the Sons of History podcast. I'm Dustin Bass. And I'm Alan Joaquin. And we are... I always have a hard time introducing this show. I always try to figure out a way to you know, spruce it up a little bit. Why don't you Ma- sing a song? Which one? Um, well... There's a lot of songs out there. What's that? Uh... No, 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 no. Not a Titanic fan. Okay. Or maybe not a Slain Dion fan. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have begun. Welcome to this episode. This episode we are extremely excited about because we have a very, very, very special guest. Um, But we'll get to that later. As we always do, to start her off, we've got book and movie selections. Alan, take it away. Well, since we are not doing fiction and nonfiction... Yeah, we haven't done it for weeks. Right. Remember, so we I, we specifically decided, hey, instead of having four books for people to read in a week, which is impossible, even for a great reader like yourself, you do not read, right? You're great. You're jarring my, my platform. You're jarring everything with this Let me tell you system. something. I am your platform. Go ahead. All right. Well, so if I can't do a fiction movie, I'm sorry, a fictional book, I'll do the movie, which is called Slaughterhouse Five. Well, congratulations. By Kurt Vonnegut. Now, Kurt Vonnegut, he directed the movie? Uh, it's based on his book. Okay. <laughs> um, Billy Pilgrim um, oh, ends man. up on some planet like far, far, far away by the Trafalmadors or something like that. I can't even pronounce it. Tralfalmadors. Okay. There, there's uh, these little hand people. Uh, it's like 60,000 light years away. And uh, he goes forward in time, back in time, and uh, can see the future. He knows when he's going to die. The girl that is imprisoned with him on planet Trafalmador, or where they come from, is, and I can't pronounce her name, but she was the secretary to... Lex Luthor in the original Superman of 1978. Great times. Yes. So that will be my movie. Now, this movie came out in 72, so you have a younger Miss Tussmacher or whatever her name was. She sounds like a nice lady. All right. Billy Pilgrim Pilgrim was the cop from uh, the Sugar Lane Express. Anyway, okay, so now, book. Billy Pilgrim, is Billy that the Pilgrim. name of the person in the, in, the, in the book? Yeah, that's the character. He's okay, just the, making sure yeah, it wasn't some obscure no, uh, no, no. B-list celebrity that no. you Billy, always know by heart. Billy Pilgrim. And you can't yes. get Michael J. Fox or Jimmy Stewart out. Yeah, yeah, Billy Pilgrim comes to mind. All right, now, in terms of books, this one book called The Longest Winter by Alex Kershaw. This book just amazed me, and here's why. You know my book collection. I've got thousands of books. It's freaking vast, yes. And majority of them, I would say, well, half of them are history, half are literature and, and science books, um, philosophy. But his book just captivated me because most history books, you know, they can be boring, but me being a history buff, I, I still enjoy reading them. You power through. I, I get through it. I get through it. This book read like a thriller, like a fictional thriller. I was so impressed by this very book Mm -hmm. um, that I went and purchased two more of his books. Um, He he was that good. And and, 
I, I really recommend it. The Longest Winter is about um, the most uh, des decorated platoon of uh, World War II. They fought in the Battle of the Bulge. Mm -hmm. And these guys, what they did was the spearhead of the Battle of, of, uh, of the German attack into the Ardennes Force. These guys were right in the middle of it. Hmm. And they delayed the German offensive. And it just pissed off the uh, the Germans. Yeah. It pissed off the general that led the attack, who was a, who was a very, very good general. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is their story. They, they get captured. Um, they're sent to a prisoner of war camp. Now, the Slaughterhouse Five that I mentioned, um, Kurt Vonnegut is in the same train with these guys. Okay. And uh, in, in the same POW camp. And it is a uh, New York Times bestseller. Uh, I I can't say enough about about this book. There there've been rave reviews uh, yeah. from many many people. USA Today, uh, Douglas Brinkley, New York Times, um, uh, even uh, James Bradley, who is the yeah. author of Flags of Our Fathers and Flag Boys, uh, yeah. just uh, says that this is a moving story of uncommon valor. So. Well, awesome. Um, well, here are my selections. I'll start with my movie. I watched this probably about a year ago. Um, and as for as old of a movie as it is, um, 1962, the cinematography was really quite impressive. I was like, wow. Like, um, and well, let me go ahead and say the movie, the longest day, um, the longest day with Sean Connery. Um, and yeah. of course, the, the legend John Wayne and, and also Henry, Henry Fonda. Fonda. Yeah. yeah. So that was a, sort of a star-studded uh, cast. Um, this movie was really, um, it's really a great movie, and it's about the D-Day invasion. Um, and interestingly enough, we have the anniversary coming up, the 75th anniversary coming up. So I think this is sort of um, fitting to promo this movie. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you have, I mean, this is one of the is is known as one of the best movies that's ever been made. Um, so if you haven't watched this movie, I would encourage you to go check it out. And actually, in regard to how well the cinematography was, it actually won uh, an Academy Award for visual effects. So it's it, it is it's quite breathtaking to know that uh, this movie was you know it's what almost about sixty years old, um, and so it's. It's yeah. quite a movie to watch. Yeah, it shows, it shows a young Sean Connery, the, the year that he came out with Dr. No, which was the first James Bond movie. Yeah. Um, I, I do remember, it, it does take things from the German perspective, the American, the mm -hmm. British, uh, even the uh, French Resistance. Yeah. And one of, the, uh, one of the best voices that you'll ever listen to, Robert Mitchum. He's also in this movie. Love that guy's voice. You ever listen to him? Uh, I have. There were times when I was a child... When I couldn't sleep, I would just I would just play some of his. <laughs> did, did... <laughs> no, not really. Yeah, that's gonna say. Didn't Robert Mitchum narrate Tombstone? You know what? I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to look on that uh, one. Yeah, I'd like to know that. But yeah. So, anyways, my book. I did want to mention one real quick thing about the longest day was that one of the actors in that movie actually was in the assault. It was the Pegasus Bridge assault. He played uh, his major. Um, I, I can't for the life of me remember what his name was. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm sure it'll come to me here in a second. But uh, but he played um, one of the British glider guys 
that captured Pegasus Bridge. He was one of the he was one of the men who landed, but he plays his commanding officer in that in that. Uh, so if you if you see the part of Major uh, Howard, uh, that's one where they go uh, hold until relieved, hold until relieved. That guy, he was an actual participant in that battle. Okay, interesting. I can't picture the the time and place of that movie. I only saw it once. Don't have it memorized. I apologize. Uh, but on to my book selection. I know I had referenced Shakespeare a few weeks ago, about eh, probably more than a month ago, um, in regards to a comedy of errors. Uh, this is another um, Shakespeare play, Titus Andronicus. Um, that's one that you don't hear a lot about. Uh, but since we've talked about um, some war-related movies and books, this is another one um, that has some disturbing imagery in it. Uh, Titus Andronicus by William Shakespeare. So, yeah, Titus is is the father, um, and he has some sons, and there's a new queen that comes in, very deceptive. Um, anyways, it becomes this all-out bad blood uh, between Titus, his family, and the queen and her family, uh, and it really comes down to some pretty bloody stuff. Um, for a story that is what 500 years old really left some uh, some images in my head which is impressive uh, all right all right alan um you somehow landed this interview and please let uh let us know who are we interviewing today we are interviewing a man who needs no introduction like, like, literally, needs no introduction. Oh, you know what? You know, we do have people who probably yeah. don't know who <laughs> he is. They probably so. need to know at least who we're talking to. The, this man is a best-selling author. Um, New York Times best-selling author. New York author. Times best-selling author. I first read his book uh, called The Longest Winter five years ago, mm -hmm. and I was so impressed with this book that I bought two other books of his, uh, Escape from the Deep, and the Bedford Boys, and uh, I got to tell you that there have been only two historical authors in my lifetime that I've read that I could not put the book down. Yeah, one was David McCullough, who mm -hmm. wrote 1776, and the other is the person that we have with us right now. His name is Alex Kershaw. Wow. Alex Kershaw wrote several books. Um, he wrote The Liberator, which is about to be a Netflix series yeah. about a man named uh, Felix Sparks. He also wrote Avenue of Spies, uh, The Few, which was about American airmen, who uh, pilots who fought in the Battle of Britain, and um, and, and, and many other books. Uh, one of them, and I, didn't, I did not even know this, I knew yeah. about this Swedish diplomat who rescued many, many Jews in uh, Hungary, yeah. and he was, uh, he, at the end of the war, he was kidnapped by the Soviets, and he disappeared. Well, I guess without further ado, let's go ahead and introduce Mr. Alex Kershaw. We have him on the line here. Mr. Kershaw, how are you doing? Uh, looking out of my window at a beautiful day in Savannah. I live in Georgia, Savannah, Georgia, and uh, thanking God that I don't live in the Northeast anymore. Uh, <laughs> so I'm very happy. Indeed. Hey, I'm telling you, as, as far as the weather goes, uh, even here in Houston right now, we've got some chill, chill factor here. We had a cold oh, really? morning, and usually uh, 
usually it's around the 80 degree mark uh, here yeah. in early April. But yeah, it's a chilly day today. That's awesome. Yeah, um, you, you you lived in Vermont. Yeah, I lived in uh, I lived in um, uh, wow. I mean, it's a long story. I left England when I was twenty eight. I met an American in London, where I was a journalist, and I came to the U.S. in nineteen ninety four. I lived in San Francisco, and then L.A., and then uh, ended up in the on the East Coast. And pretty much the last twenty years, I've been in either Western Massachusetts or Vermont. So. This is the first winter where I have not had to wear a thick coat for 20 years. And I'm thinking to myself, how crazy could I have been to spend even one winter in <laughs> minus 20 degrees? I mean, America is a big place. There's lots of really warm, beautiful places to live in America. Why did I choose the coldest? Yeah. Well, you, you, haven't, uh, you haven't faced a South Carolina... I'm sorry, you live in Savannah, Georgia, correct? Yeah. Uh, so you have not faced a Georgia summer yet, have you? Well, you know, I don't mind because, you know, okay, there's two two months when it gets a bit sticky, but um, it, you, you can't wear a T-shirt for nine months of the year in Vermont. So you know, I'll, I'll trade off the two months of sticky for nine months of being cold, you know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, because uh, you don't have to shovel uh, snow the whole time. I mean, what, what all you got to do is just turn on the AC and uh, you're pretty much set. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And you get all four, you know, you get all four seasons as as well over in Savannah. And I hear uh, Savannah's beautiful. So my local bar, you'll like this. Um, my local bar is an American Legion. Um, always a good place to drink for many reasons, and uh, I, I love it in particular because the the bar has all of the uh, division patches from World War Two. Uh, so I put my very cheap pint down on the bar and it's usually next to a Thunderbird symbol or the Happy First Airborne or the 29th Division. And um, lo and behold, after I'd been drinking there for a couple of months, uh, this is kind of an insane story, but I'd been drinking there for a couple of months and I walked out and there was this big historical sign outside the American Legion. And it said, the sign said, this is the birthplace of the 8th Air Force. So I actually, I actually had my, go out and I sit there and I sup a nice cold pint in the very birthplace of that amazing World War II Air Force, the 8th Air Force. So wow. that's kind of nice too, you know. It's almost like uh, destiny led you there, I suppose. Yeah, I know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Is it a possibility you'll write something on the 8th Air Force? Uh, yeah, I'm doing a bit of research now because I'm thinking about writing about the Battle of the Bulge again, take, trying to take an a new angle, and um, you guys probably know the 8th Air Force were very important to the outcome of that battle. Um, when the skies finally cleared in, on December the 22nd, 1944, we, we basically destroyed anything that moved on the ground that we could see, but the important point was that we could finally see things, and uh, we enjoyed massive superiority in air power, um, but cloud cover can cause lots of problems. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm definitely thinking about writing about the Air Force, the Eighth Air Force. Yeah. Awesome. Hey, uh, quick question. Uh, so you've you've been uh, going over there for the past couple of months, and obviously the World War II veterans are dwindling down to to zero. Um, are there any Eighth Air Force veterans from World War II uh, still over there? 
Um, well, there are eight Air Force veterans from World War Two alive. Yeah, still. Um, but um, I, I, I never see a World War Two veteran in the in Legion, which is, I guess, is, is a, a sign of just how, like you're saying, how few there are left right. around. I mean, I, I've just finished a book that's going to be published in a few weeks called The First Wave uh, about D-Day. It's time for the 75th anniversary, and I had a lot of difficulty trying to find anybody that was still alive from, hmm. um, let alone D-Day, but more importantly, from the very first wave. So those first units that landed on Omaha, Utah, the first guys out of the plane, whether they were British, Canadian, or American, I had a, a really hard time finding anybody that was still alive from the first wave. So let's take the most chewed up unit on any American unit on D-Day, um, you could argue in any single one action on any in any one place, Company A of the 116th Infantry Regiment that landed on Dog Green Sector of Omaha Beach. The 102 guys were killed out of about 180 in a few minutes. Um, there's no one left from Company A, so you have you know one one company first wave um, deadly sector of Omaha Beach. You wouldn't expect that many people to perhaps be alive today, but. Then you go along the beach, go along those six miles of Omaha Beach, the bloodiest beach anywhere abroad in American history, over 900 Americans killed on D-Day. And you go to F Company, E Company of the, of the 1st Division, 16th Infantry Regiment, and there's, there's uh, maybe one or two guys left, a medic that I found that died about a year ago. Um, very, very few people left alive um, uh, that actually did anything significant in the first few hours of D-Day. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of terribly sad. And I mean, it's, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I got into writing about World War II because I was a journalist and I loved, the thing I loved most was being able to go and knock on someone's door and sit down and have a cup of coffee with them and, and hear these amazing stories, you know, yeah. that there's so few left now. And uh, I think that the U.S. government has projected that effectively by the year 2022, mm-hmm. which isn't very far away, but effectively for all intents and purposes, the Second World War generation will, will have gone. I mean, we'll have a few people that you know, freakishly live to 105, 107, whatever, but right. most, most, nearly, nearly everybody else will have passed away. And mm-hmm. with it goes amazing history, you know, amazing, amazing stories. I've been writing a piece um, the last few days about the Americans that received the Medal of Honor um, on D-Day. And um, so you have 55,000 Americans landed on from the, sh- from the sea um, and then around uh, 14,000, 15,000 um, paratroopers and guys that landed in gliders. So 55,000 uh, Americans came in on two beaches, Utah and Omaha. And you only have four guys that received the Medal of Honor. Um, mm. Utah amazingly less than 200 casualties, which is extraordinary when you think about it. And on Omaha, you have over 4,000 casualties. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. But point being is that um, if you have 55,000 guys, uh, those are just the guys that are coming off landing craft on the most important, you could argue, day in, in modern history. Surely more than four of them should have received the Medal of Honor. I mean, right. you know, um, anybody that gets out of a landing craft, as you've seen Second Private Ryan, anybody that gets out of a landing craft, they at least deserve the Silver Star, let alone <laughs> of course, the DSC. Yeah. But, um, so it's very interesting. I mean, 
I've been researching why, you know, why were so few, you could argue, um, what, you know, this is somewhat scandalous. Why were only four guys, um, why did they only, only four men receive the Medal of Honor? I should say that one of those four um, should kind of be almost discounted because it was um, Theodore Roosevelt Jr., who was the, the oldest um, general on D-Day. He's the guy, the famous guy from the, the longest day that, you know, basically stumbles across the beach with a walking stick and says, we're going to start the war from here. He was the deputy acting um, uh, division commander, um, not the division commander, but the deputy on, on D-Day, um, 56 years old. But he was the president, the 26th president of the United States' son, and therefore very well connected. There was some patronage, there was some politics involved, and um, he received the Medal of Honor, so that left three. Now, mm-hmm. I wouldn't... I, Roosevelt Jr. was an enormously brave guy. He died of a heart attack on the 12th of July, 1944. He's buried in the um, the Cold graveyard next to his brother. He's got that gold star on the on the headstone because of, he, he received the Medal of Honor. But he, he it was political, I believe, the reason why he he received that medal. It was it was because he he died in Normandy and it was a symbolic act. He deserved an award for bravery, but he certainly didn't do the kind of things that hundreds and hundreds of other Americans did on, on D-Day. So that leaves three, and I'll, I, I won't ramble on too long, but all three of the guys that really qualified for the medal um, were first division on Omaha Beach, and only one of them came back, um, only one survivor from World War Two. So um, I looked into this subject, and I won't bang on too long, but uh, what I found was that... Um, uh, on Omaha Beach, you had 153 guys that received the second highest award for honor, which is the DSC. And several of those guys that received the DSC, uh, their Medal of Honor award had been downgraded. Um, so you have a, a three-man uh, evaluation board far from the front lines, nowhere near the horror of what really happened there. Didn't see anything themselves. And they sit there and they decide who's going to get the Medal of Honor and who's not going to get it. And in several cases, they actually took a Medal of Honor um, recipient and downgraded their their award because they were worried that too many people would get the medal and somehow its significance would be undermined. Um, so I've, I've got a bit, a bit of a bee in my bonnet about this. And I think that what would be really wonderful is if we took those several cases of guys that... Um, were recommended for the medal on Omaha Beach, and for the 75th anniversary, we actually award them what they should have been awarded in 1944, 45. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, it's just it's an interesting aside, you know. I, I I'm gonna have to I will agree with you on this because uh, you being British, you're aware of uh, the Battle of Rourke's Drift, and there were yeah, there yeah. were quite a few men who won the Victoria Cross of that battle, and I don't believe that it diluted the uh, importance of that uh, honor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I mean it, it. It makes it even more significant if you think about it. But actually, interestingly, as an aside, um, only one. So you had um, around about the same number of um, Brits um, uh, arrived on sword and gold beaches, the the British beaches on D-Day, and. Uh, as Americans, and uh, we only had one, one Brit out of over 50,000 um, who received the, our highest um, award for valor, which is, as you say, the Victoria Cross, and that's a guy called Stanley Hollis. So, um, 
know, I mean, I would argue that in a, on a beach where you have over 900 Americans killed, which is Omaha, um, in a fact, casualties in their thousands, not only do you have an enormous amount of death and, uh, and suffering, but you also have an enormous amount of courage because the two go hand in hand. Um, and the, the main challenge uh, in the early hours of D-Day on bloody Omaha was to get off the beach. Um, men were pinned down. Um, I don't know you guys have seen the movies, etc. You, you, you know a lot about the history probably, but the main problem on, on, on Omaha Beach was that you had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of young, inexperienced Americans who were leaderless and, had been, and were pinned down under terrible, terrible machine gun fire and were being massacred in several areas. Um, the main exits off the beach, none of them were taken um, early on. They were heavily fortified, you know, trying to take a, a strong point on Omaha Beach at seven o'clock in the morning on June 6, 1944 was really, it was pretty much suicidal. So what you needed was leadership. You needed lieutenants, uh, captains certainly, but mainly platoon leaders, um, NCO sergeants, and, and above all young lieutenants, um, many of whom had never seen combat, never been fired at before. <clears throat> you needed them to do a hell of a job, which was to stand up and lead men towards fire. So, and that takes enormous courage. I mean, you, you have to be an example, you have to stand up, but you had a look look forward, not down, and you have to shout and scream at guys to follow you and to get off that beach, or otherwise they'll be killed, and many of them were. That takes that's a definition of courage and bravery. That's also a definition of, of being audacious, of intrepidity, which is a qualification for the Medal of Honor. So the fact that um, only four guys, only three, sorry received that medal on Omaha Beach, I think it's kind of, um, it's not right. It should, it should be corrected. Right. I, I think, um, <clears throat> I think history sort of looks at it and, and I think the, the way that we're looking at it right now, like World War II is sort of this exception to the rule of wars, uh, because it stands out so significantly. And I think, uh, the Normandy and D-Day, um, that day, is sort of the exception to the rule of World War II itself because it was such, uh, uh, such a significant moment in that in that war. So I think yeah. um, everything is sort of elevated um, with what those soldiers did. And yeah, I agree. Just about anybody who had the courage to get off of those boats, um, really, you could say, uh, deserves deserves that Medal of Honor. So. I was going to mention that <clears throat> I visited the very spot uh, that the uh, Bedford boys landed on, which was Dog Green, and uh, I was there nine years ago, and uh, one thing that kept, I, I kept looking from the beach, I was walking on the beach, and I would look, and right in front of me were these very high bluffs, and to the right, which I suppose was the Charlie sector, was, were high cliffs. And I kept asking myself, why did they land on this beach? Have you discovered the reason for that? Um, they had to land on that beach. Uh, if you think about it, um, you look at the 60-mile front, you go all the way to the east to, to Wistraham, and then you go all the way to the west to Utah, at the base of the Crichton Peninsula. If you hadn't landed on Omaha, you would have had a 15, 20-mile gap between an American division 
American uh, units on Utah and then the uh, British on gold. You can't leave a 15, 20 mile gap between uh, two allied forces on that, and that, on that invasion. Um, that's a, something that would have been very quickly exploited. We didn't link up as it was for more than 24 hours, um, but that would have been left a huge gap and uh, the, the easiest thing for Rommel to do would have been to encircle the American forces um, at Utah and then trap the British and Canadians on gold, sword and Juno, um, separate them from each other and eliminate both pockets. Um, so that, that we, had to, we had to land on Omaha. Um, the, if you go to Utah, you'll see there's a big difference in terms of the topography. Utah has no high bluffs. It's um, low, rolling sand dunes. Um, at uh, Omaha, as you point out, there were 100 foot, 120 foot bluffs, um, and that made a big difference. Uh, you know, Utah, you could literally just come up, come walk ashore. Many of the guys did actually just walk ashore and then straight into the dunes. There was a a seawall, but you could you could climb over that. It was only about six foot high. Um, whereas at, at Omaha, um, there were only five key exits from that beach, five roadways, if you like, that came off the beach, um, heavily defended, and we had to take those. Um, so it was a very different different exercise, much more challenging. Um, but we did have to take. We had to be there on Omaha. If we hadn't been there. Well, I, I read that uh, <clears throat> the commanders were expecting a carnage, and that's why they put two divisions uh, on Omaha, whereas Utah only had one. Yeah. Well, the, the, the key the, the, the key difference, uh, apart from the topography, is the the absolute um, scandalous, if you ask me, failure of the bombing on on Omaha Beach. Um, one navy officer said uh, after D-Day that not one single bomb from um, hundreds of bombers and tens of thousands of tons of bombs dropped, uh, not one single bomb hit Omaha Beach. And this is a Navy officer, an intelligence officer. Um, we, we failed to destroy the defenses at Omaha um, abjectly, scandalously. We um, didn't, didn't hit from a bomber a single defensive installation on Omaha. And that's why you have the massive difference in casualties, because uh, at Utah, we we, uh, we flattened the place that's probably the most effective carpet bombing in history. We, we went along that beach, and for about 15 minutes, we destroyed almost everything. Um, so it was the way that we bombed. It was the success of the bombing at Utah, which was you know, spectacular. Um, 325, 26 uh, B-26 widow maker bombers coming along and they didn't they didn't uh, fly from the ocean across the beach and inland they, they flew parallel to the Utah defenses so if one bomb dropped uh, missed a, a pillbox or whatever it might bounce or it would be in line with the with the, with the shoreline defenses so imagine that many bombers coming over in 10-15 minutes over four over 4,250 pound bombs being dropped in seven target zones around 100 yards square. Um, it was an enormously successful bombing run um, that, uh, that really, really made a huge difference. 
Uh, I did uh, notice in uh, the Bedford Boys where the men who landed noticed there were no craters on the beaches, and that uh, really demoralized them. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. If you think about the guys who got to the top of Point de Hoc, the Rangers, um, a, a lot of those guys that survived, and there were, I think, about 50%, over 50% of the the uh, Second Ranger Battalion was, was uh, killed or wounded on at Point de Hoc. But a lot of the survivors said that the thing that really counted that helped them enormously was the fact that there were these huge craters, you know, sometimes, you know, at least 20 feet wide by 10 feet deep. Um, if you go to Point Hop today, you, you can still see those very large craters, and they provide an excellent cover. You know, an entire platoon could, could cower down in a crater um, out of the streams of machine gun fire. So anywhere we can get, anywhere in Normandy where you could get your head below ground was a very good place to be. Um, you wanted to spend as little time as possible with your head above ground. How much are you concentrating on Omaha versus the other uh, beaches? And I, and I thought I read somewhere that you also discussed the gliders. Uh, did you touch on Pegasus Beach? Uh, I mean, Pegasus Bridge or anything? Yeah, what I do, what I do is I go along. I've got uh, ten kind of main characters, and these are young combat commanders um, who are carrying out the most difficult missions on D-Day. So I have. I had the first um, American to um, drop into Normandy, a guy called Captain Frank Lilliman. He was uh, the commander of the first, first Pathfinder unit for the 502nd PIR, the 101st Airborne. They, he jumped out of a C-47 around about, I don't know, 350 feet above Normandy at 12.15 a.m. on 
June the 6th, 1944, and he's just recognised by serious historians as being the first American to put his boots on on the ground on D-Day, which makes this quite a big deal. But anyway, he, he had a very important mission, which was to set up the Eureka sets and the, the lights that would guide in the main sky train of uh, hundreds of C-47s for the 101st Airborne. So you have these 18 guys, they drop in at 12.15 a.m. Um, they have about 15, 20 minutes to set up lights and, and radar beacons. And uh, by 12.47, they've turned on the lights. And then just before one o'clock uh, on D-Day, you have the first of six and a half thousand um, screaming eagles coming in. But they, need, they needed those uh, lights to be set up. They needed those radar beacons. So they knew exactly where they were going so they could drop the guys in the, in the first place. So that was a very important mission. You know, you needed to have someone drop in first to, to um, set the lights and the beacons up. And that, that had to be done. If it hadn't been done, we would have had even more casualties from the airborne um, units. Um, you have to remember that um, with the airborne operation, um, we, we look back on D-Day, uh, the whole of D-Day now, and think that it was kind of, you know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't going to be, it wasn't going to fail. That, that, that was certainly not the feeling on the eve of the 5th of June, 1944. There was not a senior Allied commander, not a senior Allied planner of D-Day that was optimistic. Um, most of the senior guys were actually extremely worried. Um, Eisenhower himself was uh, in a nervous wreck. Um, Churchill, very skeptical. Um, Tedder, um, allied um, senior commander, very, very skeptical. Um, just a lot of pessimism, a lot of fear and a lot of anguish. Um, it was not something that people felt confident about at all, especially at the senior level where they knew exactly what they were, well, they knew very much the challenge of what this invasion uh, would be. Um, so Lee Mallory, who was the head of the Allied Air Forces, uh, uh, British, um, you know, had told Eisenhower um, a couple of months before D-Day, he'd said that to send in the 101st Airborne and the 82nd Airborne was a, a crime. It would be, was tantamount to a crime. It would it would destroy two of the finest units in, in the, uh, the American military, um, and it would be over 80%, he predicted, 80% casualties. So that's eight out of 10 guys would be killed or wounded. Um, so when Eisenhower turns up at, at Green and Common and has those you know, really famous photographs taken of him with the, with the 101st Airborne about to take off, and uh, he's looking into these guys' eyes, what he's thinking is that Eight out of ten of you, I've been told by my the head of my uh, of the air forces on D-Day. I've been told by this guy. I've been told very clearly that eight out of ten of you are not coming back. Um, thankfully, it was nowhere near eight out of ten. It was a lot lower, um, way lower. Um, but in Eisenhower's mind, you know, this fifty-three-year-old guy that's the uh, supreme allied commander, the only guy that can give the order to go, the only guy that finally could make that key decision to go. In his mind, he's thinking, as he's shaking these guys' hands and wishing them good luck, and looking into their eyes, he's thinking, you know, most of you, a lot of you are going to be killed. So, yeah, I got a bit of track there, but I think it's worth reminding people that D-Day is not, not a foregone conclusion in, in any way at all. Um, and at critical moments during the day, certainly on Omaha Beach around mid-morning, 10 o'clock to about midday, 
that was a disaster. That was a, a huge, huge uh, mess. And uh, Bradley, um, General Bradley offshore on the USS Augusta, is looking. Um, is about I think it's about five miles out, and looking through binoculars at the beach and thinking, ah, you know, this is this is a mess. So I mm. so I pull those guys off. Um, do we abandon Omaha Beach? Um, and as we just talked about just earlier on, to abandon that beach would have left a huge gap between the Americans at Utah and, and the Brits at Gold, and that would have changed perhaps the outcome of the battle. But he seriously considered that for for a while on the morning of, of D-Day. He seriously considered pulling U.S. forces off Omaha Beach because it was such a disaster. The reports were coming to him were of, of massacre and... and uh, and lots and lots of Americans being trapped, not uh, very few being able to get off the beach. And uh, he really thought about uh, about retreat. Um, so it was no, in no way was it a foregone conclusion. Hey, uh, so one of the things I wanted to ask you regarding your books, you uh, you seem to gravitate to the individual or a small group, um, and. You know, World War II is just this mass expanse of information and decisions uh, that were made, and here's what happened, and here's why it happened. But you sort of lend towards the sort of an intimate approach by following somebody's uh, path, uh, almost on a, in a, at a detailed level. Why? Why do you? Why do you take that that route of sort of bringing an intimacy to the reader of what is going on at these in these people's lives at that moment? Well, I think because I think because people like to um, you know there's there's, there's various strands of, of military history, but um, uh, to try and stay in the game of making a living from writing, I try and think about the reader all the time, and I think that people really are drawn towards human narratives. They like to be able to identify with individuals, they're like a clear hero. If, if you have a group of, of people that are in combat, it, you, know, you shouldn't make the team large, larger than the football team. You need to be able to identify and, and, uh, and attach to key characters because that's, the, you know, I'm telling a story, I'm telling a, a narrative here with a, you know, this, these are amazing people doing amazing things. These are great, great stories, the best of our time, I believe. So, I don't want to submerge readers with too much strategy and tactics and, and detail. I don't think most people are that interested in it. If you look at the, the, the movies and books that do particularly well, it, it's usually about, uh, about individual stories of heroism and sacrifice and suffering. So I'm, I've always been very drawn to the, the, the more personal side of the, of the, of, of the war. And, uh, you know, also also because I was interviewing people at, at great length. So, you know, I was basing the longest winter, for example, there were 18 guys in that one platoon. I wrote, I wrote about one platoon in the Battle of the Bulge. And there were 18 guys and in 1944, and I was lucky enough to interview 11 of them. So, and in, in particular, one guy, the platoon commander, was um, a guy called Lyle Bauk. He was a lieutenant, and uh, I spent days and days with him. So I was able to build a kind of really intimate picture of this small unit of Americans and uh, by doing that I think you can bring to life a lot more things you can really focus on the on the the, the, um, the emotions and the, the cost and the and the, the, the real nature of the courage and the sacrifice I think that otherwise it just becomes a kind of you know most I'll be honest in most World War II books read like a fairly well written very very long 
Wikipedia entry, you know. Um, it's a different skill to be able to, to tell a, a story of people in combat and do it in a way that reads like a, um, a story with, you know, with climaxes and anticlimaxes and you build up the tension, you build the scene, you create you create scenes rather than just sort of saying on this day, at this hour, you know, 1,500 men landed on this one, in this one spot. You have to take a different approach, which is you have to get people involved in characters and characters and create a narrative, you know, something that would deep, hopefully affect people and keep them turning those pages, you know. Well, I have to tell you that um, I, I do love your approach, and here's why. I've read scores of history books, and when I read your book, I remember I could not put the book down. And then as I'm reading along and I see the part about uh, Kurt Vonnegut, because I had read Slaughterhouse-Five previously, and I remember telling my wife, my God, this is just the best history book I have ever read. And literally, I could not put the thing down. And so I, I have to tell you, I love your approach. Well, I think that, you know, um, it's interesting you mentioned Kurt Vonnegut because he passed away a while ago and uh, um, I'd always been a fan of um, Slaughterhouse-Five but I hadn't read anything else but I'd always really liked Slaughterhouse-Five which is, you know, one of the... It's a strange book because, it, you know, it, it's it's fiction but a lot of it is based completely on Vonnegut's experience and he was in the 106th um, Infantry Division and uh, a lot of those guys were captured. It was a kind of a very sad and, and kind of scandalous, some people thought, uh, event in, during the Battle of the Bar, which very early on in the battle, the, um, a lot of guys um, were, were told to surrender by uh, senior officers in that division. And um, Vonnegut was one of those guys that found himself on a PW train. Actually, Vonnegut was in the same uh, POW train in, in a carriage just behind um, several of my guys from the longest winter. Um, so that's why I interviewed him. I, um, he was a you know, fantastic living eyewitness to what had happened on that train. And what happened was that the, when the skies cleared, um, you know, the, the air became a very busy place indeed. And we basically strafed and, and shot to pieces of anything that moved, especially a train. And the Germans tried to do the same. But that POW train with guys from Vonnegut's division and from the 99th division, which was the longest winter boys, they were strafed by their own side, by the uh, friendly fire. And, uh, so, you know, he gave me a very, very, very vivid description of what it was like to be strafed by our own side and you know, bullets coming through the ceiling and um, being trapped, locked into a, a boxcar on December the 23rd, 1944, and not being able to, to get out while your own side are pumping machine gun bullets through the wooden ceiling of your boxcar. That was kind of kind of a vivid uh, memory. Vonnegut uh, was kind of a kind of kind of a kind of fairly bitter and angry guy when I interviewed him. He didn't have very many positive things things to say, and uh, felt I still I, I think he still felt a lot of anger that he'd ended up spending most of his war in a, and in fact nearly all of it in a POW camp and uh, he was put on a, um, a special POW detail in in Dresden and that's that those are the very vivid scenes you get in Slaughterhouse Five and it was one of its job to clear out the ruins and take the bodies out of buildings um, in Dresden and he 
he did that after we notoriously firebombed that city in February of 1945. Um, so he had a kind of very interesting view on the war. Speaking speaking of interviewing uh, soldiers, uh, in particular uh, World War Two, um, you know a lot of people will say, well, like I've got I've got a lot of people who have like grandparents, uh, grandfathers who were, you know, e- either in, you know, Vietnam or Korea or World War II. And the typical answer for, hey, what what have they told you about this? Or, well, they don't really like to talk about it. How do you go about, um, or do you even have to sort of persuade people to open up about uh, their story or their experiences uh, in the war? And how do you get those, how do you pull those stories out from uh, soldiers? Well, you know, I've, had, I've been very lucky because um, very few people have ever, I, don't, I can't think of, I can think of a, a couple. Um, one guy from that platoon in the longest winter um, didn't want to talk to me. And uh, even though I turned up at his, his um, front door uh, in Arizona and, um, you know, had waited until he'd slept in. I was told that he slept in and didn't get up till like midday every day. And I turned up about midday and I knocked at his door and I said, look, I've written to you a couple of times. You're the only guy from the platoon that's alive that I haven't spoken to. He was a guy called McConnell. And um, and uh, he uh, he said, no, I'm not going to talk to you right now. And I said, oh, please, please, you have to understand that you know, you're know the only guy that hasn't spoken to me. I, I want to talk to you. It's important. And so I eventually managed to do like a, 10 or 15 minute phone call with him, um, which was great. Um, but most of the time, you, the, I, you know, I've, I've interviewed a lot of World War II guys, and most of the time, you, if you know what you're talking about, if you've done your research, and they are sitting down in their homes usually talking to you, um, if you know what you're talking about, if you, if you, if you kind of know what where they were, when they were there, and you can ask questions about what they did, and I kind of very specific level in some ways, that, that that starts the conversation in a good way because then they know that you, you've spent the time and you've invested some energy in working out what the hell they they did. Um, and if you stay with the sort of logistics and the, you know, what unit were you in, you know, what did you do then, what happened next, uh, and, and run through their actions, um, eventually um, they usually open up and feel comfortable and and carry on talking and uh, you can be, you know, you can sit there and just, just listen for, the trick is just to listen, not to just bang on like I'm doing now with you guys, but yeah. the trick is just to make them feel comfortable and then and then to listen as much as you can and, and then go away and, and work through the material. But I've, you know, I've had people that told me amazing things. I remember a guy from Omaha Beach, he was the only, only guy among the Bedford boys, the only officer that, that, um, came home to Bedford, uh, tackled Lieutenant Ray Nance. Um, and uh, I, I, I tried to contact him several times and he refused to speak to me, refused to speak to me. And then finally I got through his front door and was sitting there and he brought some photographs out. And uh, he actually, you know, it was, it was very powerful. He, he talked about, you know, what, what it was like to to cross Dog Green sector of Omaha Beach at, I think he arrived around 6.45 a.m. So the Bedford boys who were in Company A, there were, I think, 35 out of 180 were from that 
small community of Bedford, Virginia. Uh, it was a National Guard unit before the war, and that's why so many of them were still there in, in 1944. And of those 35, 19 were killed on Omaha Beach, and three more in the Normandy campaign. But anyway, Lieutenant Nance was the only guy from those 35, the only officer, I should say, that came back to Bedford, and he was a postman after the war. So he told me that you know he would turn up with parcels and letters at some family's homes, and they you know they they didn't want to see him because um, they were like, "What the hell are you doing here when my son died on that beach? You were you were their officer. It was your job to bring them home." And so he lived with that for the rest of his life, and he, I think he died in two thousand and nine. Uh, and so he told me those. He, he opened up about that. He started to talk about survivor's guilt, PTSD. And, what it had been like to spend the rest of his life in a town that had, where he'd come home and so many hadn't. So, you know, you just have to be, you have to persevere. And, but, you know, sadly, as I was saying, you know, you can't, there's very few left alive now. So the, in many ways, the, the joy of, of, of writing about World War II for me was meeting these these veterans and there's so few alive now that it's a, it becomes, a, it's a thrill when you do meet them, but it, it's kind of sad that there are so few people who can, can talk about what really happened. Yeah. Well, we wanted to also bring up The Liberator, which is about to, was it Netflix is uh, working on that, and they're making a drama series, kind of, is it like Band of Brothers, or? Uh, it's a four-hour um, series, and it's four parts, and it's going to be an animated um, series, a sort of combination of cutting-edge animation technology and live action. So it sounds quite exciting because they're kind of trying to to uh, reinvent the, the way that you can tell a World War Two story by both animating it, by, but also by using live action. It's a, it's a very it's, it's basically a new technology they're using. It, ironically, the the company that sparked Felix Sparks is a liberator, and he he was a commanding officer of. Um, for quite a while, certainly through the Italian campaign at Anzio, he was the commanding officer of E Company from the 157th Infantry Regiment of the Thunderbird 45th Infantry Division. So ironically, I've been seeing um, Instagram posts and uh, Facebook posts from the, the filming. They did, they've just done me a lot of the filming in Poland. Um, and... Uh, a lot of these actors are sort of like taking selfies and stuff like that, and they they they're all describing themselves as E Company, and of course it was in the band of brothers it was E Company. So we have yet another E Company. Mm -hmm. It's just a, a, a different division, and a, a very a very very different war, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that had to be. Um, <clears throat> I mean, to have your your books be so successful. Uh, is is one thing. It's got to be extremely exciting. But then to have Netflix come in and purchase the rights uh, to one of your books. Uh, one, this is two questions. One, how cool is that to have Netflix reach out uh, for that? And two, have they explained to you what Trioscope hybrid animation is? No, they haven't. And I sound <laughs> completely confused, don't I? Because I you could probably tell me right now. It'd be great. But no, it's fantastic because you know, Netflix, which is not I think they've almost got 150 million subscribers around the world. So the idea that those 150 million people could possibly watch a story about um, amazing people that I met and a, you know an incredible American um, is it's very. I mean, it's 
you can imagine how that that might feel. I mean, I I think about, when I heard the news, I thought immediately about the families. I thought about, I thought about all the guys I'd interviewed. I thought about Sparks's grandchildren that I'm still in in, in, in touch with, um, and I just think about all those guys that wore a patch, that Thunderbird patch on their shoulder in World War Two. Um, I, I think about guys in the 45th Infantry Division today. I know that the regiment, the 157th Infantry Regiment, is still still going strong. I went to a, a muster for it like four or five years ago and, and people are very proud of their history. But to, that, to have that story told about this American, amazing American unit that gave so much is, is it's, it's fantastic. You know, it's, it's fantastic to think that hopefully an entire new generation is going to be brought into World War II just as it was with Band of Brothers. You know, I mean, I think Band of Brothers changed was, was having, still having an incredible impact on on each new generation coming along and watching TV. It's brought so many people into, you know, made so many people interested in World War II. So I'm, I'm hoping that in, in some way that the, the Netflix thing will, again, really get another generation, a younger generation, maybe a video game playing generation. I I'm hoping that 12 and 13-year-old kids are going to watch this and, and, and really get into World War II, you know? Right. Alan, I don't know about you, but I am loving this interview. I know that this is just the first part of this interview that we've that we're putting out into episode form with our podcast. We've got a, uh, at least one or two more that's going to come up from this conversation we've had with Alex Kershaw. But we've heard the entire thing. I I loved talking to Alex Kershaw. What are you? What were your thoughts? I had the best time. Yeah, he was so personable. Uh-huh. Uh, I didn't know what to expect. I've never spoken to him before, mm-hmm. and uh, he's 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 friendly. He's yeah. funny. He's uh, so knowledgeable. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm. I, I wish I could. I wish I was a poet who could just come up with the correct words for this yeah. moment. But and I know you moment. and I. We were super excited. We we told him before we we started recording. We we're like, hey. We uh, we're like a couple of giddy schoolgirls over here. Like we're just so excited about this interview uh, that's that's taking place. And seriously, like nervous, excited. Yeah, um, I was nervous. I've I've known who he was now for five years. Yeah, and uh, you know um, when when I wrote I wrote a review of his book, Mm -hmm. and uh, one day I noticed that somebody liked that review. And I looked, and it was him. Yeah, and wow. I was—I remember just having this uh, this thrill up my leg. <laughs> <laughs> How far up? <laughs> we won't go into detail about no, that. But it was—I uh, I just remember—I remember telling a few people, "Wow, you know this this author whose work I'm." immensely impressed with uh, actually liked my review of his work so yeah. uh, I was uh, I was quite happy and uh, to actually have had the opportunity to sit and speak with him for for as long as we did I, yeah you know we thought it was going to be half an hour and uh, and it ended up being much longer so right yeah exactly. I, I enjoyed it I so we've got it. more to come that's right um, and we are excited to present that to y'all um, we hope that you all enjoyed uh, the first section of this interview with Alex Kershaw, New York Times bestselling author. Um, and just a reminder, remember May 14th is when his book, The First Wave, comes out. So be sure to pick that up. And remember, actually you don't know, we know, 
but he will be in town here in Houston uh, sometime in June. We'll keep you posted on the exact date of that. I know Alan and I said we would be very excited to, to go and see him for his, for his book tour. Um, so he'll be stopping here in the big H town. He will be at the Holocaust Museum for that. Um, so anyways, uh, yeah, that is, that's the show for today. Um, Alan, where can the people find us? They can find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and www.thesonsofhistory.com. That's right. Uh, incredible website, ton of stuff. Uh, going on and if you haven't yet go uh, subscribe to our YouTube page and if you haven't subscribed to your uh, whatever platform you're listening at, to our podcast on go ahead and subscribe and rate and review if you don't mind uh, also go ahead and uh, like and follow our Facebook Twitter and uh, Instagram pages <clears throat> there's a lot of stuff going on we try to keep that baby busy um, and as we like to always do, we like to end off with the scripture. And the scripture is Leviticus 19.32. It says, Stand up in the presence of the elderly and show respect for the aged. And I think that is exactly what Alex Kershaw does with his books. He tells the stories of, well, we call it the, the greatest generation, uh, but the the past generation, um, those who have done so much and deserve all the respect and honor in the world. Um, and as we told him during the interview, we thanked him so much for what he is, what he's done and what he continues to do uh, to tell the stories of those who, uh, who sacrifice so much. So, yeah, I think this is sort of a fitting. Because he was certain saying that he, um, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he was talking to people that he himself, he didn't participate in any of these battles, so mm -hmm. he doesn't know if he comes even close to yep. um, the status of these men. Right. But, you know, for me, I said to him, well, you know, you may not have participated in these battles, but you're telling the story for future generations. Yep. So this is why you're like Herodotus and Thucydides. Yeah. So it's a huge thing. All right, that is it. We will talk to you all next week. And God bless you all as we try to entertain you and educate. <laughs>